Book Three, Chapter Fourteen of Clara Vaughan, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Clara Vaughan, Volume Two, by R. D. Blackmore. Book Three, Chapter Fourteen. From Sally's eager description of the coat and buttons, I concluded easily that a servant from Vaughan St. Mary had been sent in quest of me. My father hated showy liveries and loathed hair powder, but Mr. Edgar Vaughan returned to the family usages, or rather allowed them to re-establish themselves, for on such questions he was wholly indifferent. Now what could be his motive for sending so expressly to discover me? I knew not, neither cared very greatly but wrote at once to Tossel's Barton, first to return their loving contribution, which consisted mainly of ancestral relics prized for generations, secondly to set free the secret of my address. Into my own self I returned once more. Somehow I seem to expand whenever I come into contact with the yeoman's family and their lowly greatness. I am like a worm when it rains after the drought of summer. Surely the God who leaves us to stifle ourselves with the dust of fashion and convention, has his own gracious times to breathe upon and scatter it. At intervals we may see through the reek of our own exuding, and inhale a more bracing air than sleeps in mausoleums. But instead of being exalted and fed by the open breeze, we shudder at the draught and replace our respirators. I returned into myself and found little comfort there. I do not live inside myself, as most people live in theirs. True, I am apt to resent any slight to it offered from the outside. True, I seek its keep and comfort in a mechanical sort of way. But as for crusting in its bottle, ripening in its husk, rusting in its watch-case, I have been too long the toy of wind and weather not to be turned inside out. Never can I moulder into the fungoid nucleus the British taste admires. And yet there is about me, if I must not say within me, a staunch cleaving, a cohesion, a concrete will, which is of genuine Anglo-Saxon fibre. So I thrust aside all dreams of Tossel's Barton and Vaughan Park, and certain wilder, sweeter dreams which have begun to flutter and thrill through me, and in earnest I return to my task of money-making. Giudice still is faithful, and comforts much my solitude. He has never asked his master's leave or mine, he has never received any formal invitation, yet here he looks all at home, sleek and unblushing, though long since quite convalescent and equal to livery-stable diet. Once, indeed, as we passed the entrance, he pretended to me that his conscience pricked him, to ease it, he sniffed about and halted just for a moment, then turned his nose up, recocked his tail, and trotted jauntily on. Since then he has always avoided that left side of the street. He is affable still to Isola, but clearly regards her as no more than a pleasant acquaintance. Whenever she enters the room, he walks from his corner with a stretch and a yawn, sniffs all round her dress to learn where she has been, and what dogs she has spoken to, then, in the absence of any striking discovery, he looks into her face with a grave complacence, and brings me his conclusion. Tom and the birds, the squirrel and the little marmoset, Mrs. Shelfer's newest and dearest pet, 
he gazes upon from a lofty standing as so many specimens of natural history interesting so far but otherwise contemptible he is now allowed free run of the house understands all the locks and presents himself in every room at the proper meal-time even the little dressmaker is then honoured with his attentions everybody loves him he is so gentle and clever and true back he comes to me with his mouth rather greasy i must admit gives me one kiss as a form i'm afraid and exclaiming dear me what a life this is sits down on his rug to think no one can tempt him farther than the corner of our street except his master or myself miss flounce with my permission granted not without jealousy once aspired to the escort of judice although she carried a bag of his favourite biscuits made perhaps of bone dust and kept one of them in her hand judy flattered her only to the corner then he turned abruptly and trotted firmly rudely she called it home with his eyes upon my balcony i gave him more of his biscuits than he would have got from her all this was very delightful but there were two sad drawbacks in the first place judice expected me to forego every other line of art and devote all my time to portraiture of himself this was unreasonable and i could not do it apart from other considerations mr oxgall after buying three studies of him declined to take any more until those three should be sold to giudice himself i had based my refusal upon more delicate grounds i had quoted to him although lest i profane your hallowed part queen nature chills the blood around my heart sweet dog permit me to indulge my dream of country valleys and the mazy stream but he took no heed and never would permit me so to do without the keenest jealousy the other drawback was still more serious either by maintaining the dog i placed his owner under an obligation or by engrossing the dog's society i laid myself under obligation to his owner either view of the case was unpleasant the latter which i adopted soon became intolerable so i spoke about it to isola for i could not well explain myself to her brother who ought indeed to have perceived my dilemma oh donna she cried what nonsense you do talk obliged to us indeed i am sure we are all greatly obliged to you and many a stir it saves us at home for the dog detests papa so and when conrad comes to see us he can't bear to have judy shut out like a thief and he the most honourable dog that ever wagged a tail to be sure he is you know you are don't you oh combination of bayard and aristides that union of justice and chivalry wagged his tail to me and nodded gravely to isola but i have said all along that connie should pay for his board and he feels it too but we could not tell how to propose it to you dear donna you are so very outrageous i should hope so indeed and then i am sure it would break poor judy's heart to go wouldn't it now judy judice did not answer her but came and laid his great head on my lap and looked up at me as only a dog can look in that wistful look he said as plainly as possible you know i am only a dog but you clara happen to be a human being and so you know all we dogs know and ever so much besides only you can't smell you can talk as fast as you like both to each other and to us but we can talk to none except our fellow-dogs now don't take a mean advantage of me 
I know that I was made only to be your servant, and I love you with all my heart, that I do. I can't tell at all where I shall go when I die, or if I shall go anywhere, and I am sure I shall die if you cast me away like this. So I kissed his dotty whiskers, and promised not to desert him, though I should go all the way to the stables twice a day to see him. "'And another thing, Clara dear,' resumed his master's sister, "'I consider him now more my dog than Connie's. You know he was given between us.' This was the first time I had heard of it. "'And I only lent Conrad my half, as long as he liked to pay for him.' Lovely Isola, like most other lovely girls, was keen about money matters. Not that she was ungenerous. That impulsive little mortal would give away all her substance the moment her heart was touched, and it was not hard to touch, despite all the quick suspicions which her London life and native shrewdness had now begun to produce. But as regards small dealings, she was thoroughly qualified to keep a meat-pie shop, or go upon board wages, or even to take furnished lodgings, by which climax I mean no disrespect to Mrs. Shelfer, who, considering her temptations, is the very pink of honesty, especially since Giudice came. As to these small matters, and as to many large ones, I was dear Isola's cardinal opposite. She would make for most men a far better wife than I should, although she will never love with a tenth part of the intensity. She can't even hate like me. When I hate, I loathe and abhor. I never hate any one lightly, and hardly ever am reconciled or suppress it. Isola talks about hating, but has never learnt what it means. Spite she can carry, and nurse like a doll, and count it a minor virtue, albeit she cannot be sulky. Hate is too heavy a burden. Scorn, which is with women the hate of things beneath them, Isola hardly knows. Perhaps she will learn it when her knowledge of the world narrows and condenses, as with most women it does. Another great difference there is between Isola and me. Although she never would think of deceiving anyone seriously, and would on no account tell a downright malicious lie, yet she is not so particular about telling little fibs, or at any rate colouring matters so highly that others are misled. This she can justify to herself in a charming, warm-hearted way, and yet she rarely makes mischief. Her departures are half unconscious, and always arise from goodwill. "'And so now, Clara dear,' concluded the senior sophist, "'as Conrad has owned all the dogs so long, it is my turn to own every bit of him for an equal period, and I must pay you half a crown a week for his keep, and half a guinea for doctoring him so well. I was much inclined to take her at her word. It would have been such a surprise, but what a disgrace to Judice and to me. Oh, Donna, she continued, you have no idea how fond dear Connie is of you. I'm getting so jealous. He thinks much more of you than he does of me. I bent over my drawing with more carmine on my cheeks than was on my palate. What folly, to be sure! And Isola would come round in front. Why don't you answer me, Clara? Did you ever know such a shame? Well, I do believe you like being admired every bit as much as I do, in spite of all your sublimity. Why, there comes Connie himself. And to my great relief she stepped on to the balcony. I thought so. I knew the ring of his heel. He will wear such clumsy boots, though his foot is as pretty as mine. I always know his step, and so does Judy. Alas, and so do I. 
how weak and paltry of me with a life like mine before me i will go and open the door cries his sister how rude he is to come when you are so busy clara away she runs then ushers him grandly in and away again to nurse the marmoset i know that i look slightly discomposed there is a glow upon me as if i had stepped into sunlight conrad fails to notice it or conceals the perception he stands before my easel how i long for his approbation that of course is only from his knowledge of art and his native taste yet i fear to look at his face but wait for him to speak with a stretch like a windlass and a cavernous yawn up comes Giudice and pokes himself right in front of my work. Could I have foreseen that effrontery and execrable taste, less bread and milk would he have had for breakfast. Conrad perceives my vexation, and despite his good breeding is too natural not to smile. The smile is infectious, and I obtain no more than a look of commendation. But that is enough for me. I resolve to keep the drawing. Mr. Oxgall may bid what he likes." As our eyes meet, Conrad's and mine, I see that he is not in his usual spirits. Something has happened to vex him. Oh, that I dare to ask what it is! I also am heavy at heart, and ill at ease with myself. Is it any wonder? My nature is true and straightforward as well as proud and passionate, but here have I been for weeks and weeks stooping below its level. I have even been deceitful. Perhaps there was no dishonour in my change of name, with such an object in view. Perhaps there was good excuse for maintaining disguise with Conrad when first we met in London. But was it right and honourable to persist in my alias when I could not help suspecting his growing attachment to me? Peradventure my conscience alone would not account for all the misery I felt about this. Had I no selfish misgivings as well? Now, as I stood before him, my breast began to flutter with fear, not so acute but deeper than my alarm in the dark when I crouched from the conspirators. "'Miss Valence,' at last he began, "'I am grieved in my heart by hearing that you were not treated at all politely last night.' He was greatly moved and began to lose his command of colloquial English. I had spent an evening at the professor's house in Lucas Street, the second time only of my being there. Now I came to recollect it, Dr. Ross had certainly been a little overbearing, but I did not feel hurt thereby, because I cared not for him, and I knew it to be his manner. Isola had told her brother, but without meaning any harm. Her father, no doubt, had been vexed, because I could not sell him my gordit. "'Oh, Mr. Ross,' I replied, "'I think nothing at all of that. A learned man like your father cannot be expected to bear with every ignorant girl's curiosity.' To a lady's love of knowledge, every gentleman should administer and be gratified. All men of lofty science enjoy to meet with a gentle mind inquiring. It was not the first time Master Conrad had disparaged by implication his father's great acquirements. To me it seemed scarcely graceful, and very far from dutiful. But many of my sentiments are dreadfully old-fashioned. An awkward pause ensued. How could I answer without condemning one or the other? Though I could not quite acquit Conrad, my heart was entirely with him, for I had long been aware that he was not happy at home. There he stood, with an angry countenance, having declined the chair I had offered him. Suddenly he took both my hands and looked me full in the face, though his eyes were glistening. I gazed full at him, with vague apprehensions rising. How or why I know not, 
but at that very moment my hair, which is always a trouble to me, fell in a mass down my cheeks and neck. He started back, but still held my hands. I am made certain that I have seen you long ago. I will think. I will think. I saw at once how it was. The fear on my face reminded him. I meant to tell him some day, but I never meant him to find out. Scorning myself for a hypocrite, I looked steadfastly at him and smiled. You will forgive me, Miss Valence. You know that I would not use a freedom. He saw in my eyes that I knew it, and dropped my hands, and went on. You will think me the weakest in mind and most wicked, but I am most unhappy. I started in turn, and how I longed to console him. What use is pride if it cannot even command one's eyes? It is to me a disgrace to come to you with my troubles, but I do it from no unmanly temper. I do it alone for the sake of my precious sister, Isola. I have no longer any one whom I dare to love but her, and now I am compelled to abandon her at the last. Do you mean to be long away? This I managed to ask pretty well, though it was sore work. I shall not be away from London, but I shall be departed from Isola. The house where she lives I am no more to visit. A long time I have gone there, only a little and alone, to see her. She is ordered now to come no more to me. This day I spoke very violently, but I will not detain you with that. I will confess I did wrong, but I was richly provoked. My object in burdening you is double. First, to implore you, if I may without using liberty, to endure well with the Professor, lest she should be interdicted from coming to visit you, and then she would have no one remaining to love her. Second, to ask a thing that I hesitate, because I cannot narrate to you all things, whether you would indulge me, if there is no wrong, to come now and then to see my own and my only sister. Of course you do not mean without her father's knowledge. I would never insult you, Miss Valence, by asking a thing like that. I desire nothing of what you call clandestine. You are so free and open, you would never have to do with any sort of concealment. Neither am I in the habit to do anything like that. It has only been commanded that I may not go there, or invite her to come to my house. The Professor has great power in the present, but he does not pretend to interdict me from my sister. His eyes flashed as he spoke with an expression quite unfilial. Remembering how differently I had loved my own dear father, I felt disappointed and grieved, but had no right to show it. One more thing I will entreat of you, Miss Valence. Poor Isola has never learned what means any grief. If she is vexed by this, I pray you to sustain and comfort her, for I shall never make a wrong advantage of your most kind permission, so as to see her very often. He raised my hand to his lips in gratitude for what he called a kindness beyond all value to him, and his voice was trembling as he turned away. But I had done no kindness, I had given no permission, for I was not calm enough to distinguish right from wrong. Strange indeed it seemed to me that I, for the most part so decided, could not now determine, but was all perplexity. My great iceberg self-reliance built in bleak and lonesome years, was now adrift and melting in the bright sun of friendship and the warm sea-depths of love. End of chapter 14